In this episode, we'll continue to follow the story of several police officers who in the 1980s were empowered to take drugs off the streets of Lexington, Kentucky, and instead, with the use of airplanes and their connections in South America, they created one of the largest drug smuggling operations in the central United States. It is the story of narcotics officer turned drug smuggling pilot, Drew Thornton, his co-conspirators Bradley Bryant, Henry Vance, and others in their operation known locally as The Company. Stay tuned for the second episode of Fly By Night. In episode one, you learn how Lexington, Kentucky law enforcement, DEA, and members of the local FBI field office became aware of the criminal enterprise of Drew Thornton and his partners. Thornton, a former Lexington Narcotics Squad officer and pilot, had seemed to be living a charm life until he was tripped up by his own greed and his thirst for adventure, and by the actions of others. There was suspicion surrounding the disappearance of a young woman who had been supplying information on Lexington area drug use to one of Thornton's fellow narcotics officers, a young woman whose remains haven't been found to this day. There was the theft of specialized military equipment from the famed China Lake Weapons Depot in California. That theft was soon tied to Thornton's partner, Bradley Bryant. According to later indictments, Bryant had enlisted the help of a cousin who was serving at China Lake to steal night vision equipment and weapons. Bryant's plan was that they would use an empty plane to transport the military gear to Columbia, where they would then trade it for drugs to fly back to the States. It was the unraveling of this plot that would eventually temporarily ensnare pilot Drew Thornton, but not before he had successfully made multiple drug-running flights from South America into Kentucky. Because Thornton and his associates got away with them, the stories of most of the successful flights can never be shared. But there are a couple that stand out due to evidence left behind and because of the actions of a corrupt DE agent named Harold Brown. There is the strange case of a DC-3, registered at that time as November 625 Echo, found on an airport in western Kentucky. According to a published report of the Times, local police found Thornton and two other men with the plane. But without a warrant, they had no probable cause for a search. Though it was strongly suspicioned by police that the plane had been used by Thornton to bring in a large cargo of pot, DEA agent Harold Brown's unusual actions beginning several days earlier, and again on that night, diverted the attention of legitimate law enforcement, and that allowed Thornton and his crew to get away untouched. Everything seemed to go Thornton's way that night, including failed surveillance as they left the airport and made their way onto the Bluegrass Parkway and other highways. Thornton and his partners were able to elude a car that was tailing them, and there were odd phone calls from Brown that seemed to indicate the plane had been spotted elsewhere. By the time a search warrant was executed and the plane searched, the cargo area of the DC-3 had been doused with a motor oil additive known as STP, empty cans of which littered the interior, and no incriminating evidence was to be found. At the time, the DC-3 was registered to Air Transport Systems, a Delaware-based company apparently owned by Thornton. It would be re-registered as November 999 Alpha Tango, and years later, would once again become November 625 Echo before disappearing from the FAA registry forever in August of 2013. 
DEA agent Harold Brown's actions and relationships were causing great concern with his co-workers and bosses in the agency. According to a former Lexington area detective who provided information on Brown and others in an unrecorded background interview, Brown was considered the center point of information on drug smuggling in Kentucky, but often refused to share any useful information with other members of law enforcement agencies. Retired FBI agent Jim Huggins recalls hearing about Harold Brown's alleged role in providing cover for Thornton's operations. We had received information, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but that there was a plane flown into Bluegrass Field with loaded down with marijuana, and I was unloaded there, and then the plane was then flown down to Bowman Field where it was abandoned. We received confirmation of that. At the time, it was reported think in the newspaper about this mysterious plane, but not much else. But later we, we learned uh, from uh, a very good source of information who was present at the time the plane was unloaded that told the whole story of what happened there. And uh, supposedly the, the head of the DEA in Louisville, a guy by the name of Harold Brown, was knowledgeable of this and was supposedly uh, providing protection for the guys in, in Louisville when they abandoned the plane. But that was not a, a subject of an FD, FBI investigation at the time. It was pretty much worked by the local police and DEA. But even with strong suspicions about his alleged role in helping thwart that investigation into Thornton's DC-4 that had landed at Bluegrass Field with tons of pot on board, Brown escaped indictment as others were being charged. Eventually, Brown left the DEA not long before he would become vested in his retirement plan, a fact that others found highly suspicious, and that included the DEA agent who replaced Brown as head of the Kentucky operations. Kelly Snyder began his career in federal law enforcement by applying to the Secret Service, but when it became obvious he would have to wait a long time to be assigned a training slot, he decided to take a position with the U.S. Customs Agency where he had his first experience in pursuing narcotic smugglers. It was then an easy transfer over the newly renamed DEA in 1974, which up until then had been called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Snyder would have a 21-year career with DEA until his retirement in 1995. My name is uh, Jerry Kelly Snyder, and... um I was the resident agent in charge from 1982 to 1984 in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was the agent responsible for the entire state of Kentucky and portions of Southern Indiana. Yeah, it was uh, shortly after I had transferred uh, to Kentucky, I started receiving information immediately from the agents and administrative staff uh, in the Louisville office. Uh, that the former resident agent in charge, whose name was Harold Brown, uh, literally resigned from his position, uh, I believe it was six months before his retirement. Now, that's a very odd thing for anyone to do because you're giving up, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on how long, you know, you plan on living. But I asked a little bit more in depth as to what was going on. And the irony to this is that When I transferred to Kentucky as the new agent in charge, uh, DEA management in Washington, D.C. did not provide me with any information about Harold Brown. They just said I was replacing an agent in charge that had left the office. 
And once I got there, I wanted, I was a little bit curious as to why a guy would leave six months before his retirement. Just a few years later, in March of 1984, Harold Brown's body was discovered in his Louisville apartment. His death ruled a suicide. And though local cops and the DEA were relieved that the story of a DEA agent working the other side was over, then DEA agent Snyder recalls that there were those who found the circumstances of Brown's death suspicious. Well, yeah, it was, um, and I'm not exactly sure when that happened, but uh, I think it was about a year and a half after, maybe even close to two years after I had transferred to Louisville, I got word from someone, I believe it was Dale Lichty, to be honest, uh, that Harold Brown was found deceased in his his apartment uh, in Louisville, and um, that it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And when it was told to me, it just didn't make any sense. And and the reason I'm saying that is Harold was the kind of guy that uh, didn't seem to be intimidated by by anything. And this is not my personal uh, information. It's more just on what was told to me over the years as to what kind of a person he was. And then he had a certain arrogance and ego, um, like, you know, no one found anything about me. And, and, uh, so I'm not really sure, you know, what is, um, is going on, but it, it just, he just seemed like the kind of guy that couldn't be, you know, the type of person that would commit suicide. So there was a speculation that, you know, the gun was in his hand, but then that he was being forced to, you know, shoot himself, you know, just because of, there's many ways to, kill someone and make it look like a suicide. And that, as long as I can remember, that has been the, you know, the attitude of a lot of police officers. And then, of course, Jim Malone and Cliff Best both thought that he was murdered and it had something to do with Drew Thornton. And uh, and then how everything was going sort of south on Drew Thornton's life and his smuggling activities and that uh, this was the end result of just a lot of co-conspirators wanting to move Harold Brown out of the way just on the chance that he might uh, turn the corner and become an informant or something. When Thornton, Bradley Bryant, and others in their team needed large-scale suppliers to fill the cargo hold of their planes, Bryant turned to the Chagra brothers, Jimmy Chagra of Las Vegas, and attorney Lee Chagra of El Paso. Bryant's earlier work for an organized crime-connected businessman with offices in Philadelphia and New York had led Bryant to Las Vegas, and there he connected with Jimmy Chagra. Theirs was a criminal partnership that made it possible for the Lexington-based smuggling operation to grow their business. But it would later spell the end of Bryant's partnership with Drew Thornton, when Thornton feared the high-profile Chagra brothers would bring too much attention to their operation. Jim Huggins remembers the role of the Chagra brothers in splintering the Thornton-Bryant connection. Yeah, at one point when uh, Bradley Bryant was in Las Vegas, uh, he he started meeting up with some pretty uh, high-level drug smugglers, uh, supposedly uh, Jimmy Chagra and and others. And at that time, uh, 
Andrew Thorne was getting a little nervous. He thought, hey, this is a little bit out of our league. I don't think we should be messing with these folks. We ought to keep our own operation. So he and Bradley had a falling out over that, and at that point, they pretty much went their different ways. Thornton's fears of the fallout of working with the Chagras proved valid, starting with the mob-style killing of Lee Chagra in his law office in El Paso in 1978. And less than a year later, on March 29, 1979, on the day a trial of Jimmy Chagra was to begin, the presiding judge in Chagra's case, Judge John Wood, was assassinated in his driveway in San Antonio, Texas. Jimmy Chagra's life and crime is well documented, with relationships to organized crime families in the Northeast and Las Vegas. And Chagra was under intensive investigation for drug smuggling using boats and planes. Charged with trafficking, Chagra was set to face Judge Wood, who was sometimes known as Maximum John for his reputation of handing out the longest sentence possible. It was suspected by Chagra and his legal team that Judge Wood was planning a sentence of life without parole for Jimmy Chagra. So Chagra hired Charles Harrelson to kill Wood. Harrelson, father of actor Woody Harrelson, was eventually arrested, convicted, and sentenced to two life terms for the murder. Incarcerated at the Florence Supermax prison, Harrelson died of a heart attack in March of 2007. Jimmy Chagra was acquitted of the murder of Judge Wood but was sentenced on other charges and eventually admitted his role in the conspiracy in hopes of getting his wife released from prison for her role in the assassination. But his admission of his guilt wasn't enough to free his wife. She died in prison, and Chagra was released for health reasons in 2003. Living under the name James Madrid, Jimmy Chagra died in 2008. As FBI agent Huggins mentioned earlier, The attention that his partner, Bradley Bryant's connections brought to the organization finally became too much for Drew Thornton. And with the relationships he now had in Columbia, and with new partners both in and out of aviation to support him, Thornton began to make the move from smuggling large volumes of marijuana to the far more lucrative smuggling of cocaine. When aerial smugglers transitioned from pot to coke, They no longer had need for large transport and cargo-type aircraft, the kind of planes that were more likely to draw attention when landing at rural airports. Now, with smaller, faster, twin-engine aircraft outfitted with long-range fuel tanks, they wouldn't need to expose themselves to as much scrutiny by landing at intermediate airports for fuel. Instead, smugglers could make non-stop runs from Columbia to airports throughout the southeast. And in the air, they could blend in more easily, often timing their inbound runs through the Caribbean and Bahamas to occur on Sundays when the largest number of flying vacationers were returning from weekend trips in similar-sized planes, and when radar scopes were full of targets. Rick Sanders has had a long and broad-based law enforcement career on the local, state, and federal level. He currently serves as the chief of police in Jeffersontown, Kentucky, just south of Louisville. Before that, he was the commissioner of the Kentucky State Police. But for over 20 years, he was a DEA agent and helicopter pilot with postings in Florida, the Midwest, and Kentucky. While in Florida in the late 80s and early 90s, Sanders had a first-hand look at the results of the often dangerous flying of drug-smuggling pilots like Drew Thornton. 
Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I, I, we used to do 30-day TDYs in the Bahamas. I was flying a, a Bell 412, which is a basically a twin-engine Huey uh, for the government. And we would work with the Bahamian police trying to stop smuggling activity in, in the islands. And I remember my first flight out over the Caribbean, uh, I saw several airplanes submerged in water uh, that had been unsuccessful bringing loads back into the country. Uh, in particular, there was an island off uh, on, uh, right on in the Caribbean there, right off the coast of Nassau. And I can't remember the name of the island, but uh, Carlos later had uh, used that, bought that, and, and maybe even built the strip. I don't know. But, uh, you know, he had the reputation of being that uh, that cowboy flying loads into the Caribbean. But I can remember seeing airplanes, uh, you know, just uh, that had run off the runway or, or missed the strip or whatever throughout, spread out throughout the Caribbean. Though Thornton ran some of the same routes from Columbia to the southeast, Unlike the pilots of the crashed and abandoned plane Sanders saw, his luck wouldn't run out until that night when he was over Knoxville. By then, Thornton was flying smaller, faster twins. No longer needing larger planes the size of a DC-4 Skymaster and large ground operations to offload and transport huge bells of pod and trucks, Thornton could bring in a few hundred pounds of cocaine in the back of a Cessna Titan twin and easily move it in the trunk of a nondescript sedan. Just another small plane landing at another airport with luggage being loaded into a car destined to join tens of thousands of other cars on the highways of Georgia, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Thornton built new partnerships to help him fly coke into the southeast and Kentucky. And according to law enforcement and media reports of the time, one of his most important partners was Burt Gordon, who worked closely with infamous cocaine importer Carlos Lader. Burt Gordon, one of those shadowy characters that surface when researching major drug smuggling operations, has been described as either one of the key players in supporting the Medellin cartel and Lader's operations out of Norman's Key, an island in the Bahamas, or alternately as a small-time player who exaggerated his importance. We'll have more on Burt Gordon and the aerial smuggling operations of Carlos Lader in a future episode. Coming up in Episode 3, you'll hear of those whose contacts with Thornton's smuggling business led to their disappearance or their deaths. You'll hear of Melanie Flint, once an aspiring performer from Lexington who is said to have been a possible informant, working with officers who served on the city's first narcotics squad. And you'll hear the tragic case of a prosecutor in Florida who opened his front door to find an assassin. Fly by Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Hendrik Anderson with additional music by Abe Stites. Show art is by Aini with additional design by Abe Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Abe Stites and additional mixing and audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly by Night wherever you get your podcasts. And for photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.